good. Welcome to Isaiah's World. We've only got 65 chapters to go. Be good. So my name's John Abbott. Welcome to Colin. We will uh, get, get into um, Isaiah in a few ticks. Just a couple of things just to um, let you know about. Uh, firstly, uh, I'd love to know you're visiting or anything. So just these blue cards, please fill it out in that red box. Give it to myself or Colin. You'll just notice on the back of the leaflet um, that uh, was just a notice of an annual general meeting. Uh, Trinity Bay, we're part of a network of incorporated churches. It means we actually have to have a, a thing called an AGM every year. Uh, we just wanted to let you know of a couple of things um, that we'll be nominating and looking to bring on two more leaders to the leadership team. As, and uh, you just need to get someone to nominate you uh, and speak to myself or one of the leadership team. But also just to let you know, there's a minor tweak to our sort of... Um, a resolution, if you like. Uh, it's very minor, but we're legally obliged to just let you know if you want to have a look at it. So they're up the back. For those people who like reading that stuff, please <laughs> feel free to help yourself. Um, but we'll be, uh, um, yeah, that'll May the 15th, that is coming up as well. And uh, it's good. Let me just pray as we just get into this uh, really, really uh, exciting uh, book from God. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you that you are a personal and relational God. You are a speaking God. Thank you that you have spoken in history and continue to speak today through the Bible by the power of your spirit. And so we pray to you now, please teach us. Please help us to hear your word. Amen. Excellent. Well, we live in a Photoshop world, don't we? I've got some photos here. Uh, the use of apps like Snapchat, you can do things like this you might recognize there's a Jamie Seafang sitting behind that bunny rabbit then there's the next one yeah one here and the next one that's my favorite uh, that's the face swap so Aisha and Jamie doing a face swap but uh, I'm starting like this just really to remind you that there's a fantastic birthday party happening this afternoon that Jamie's running Trinity Bay evenings turns two and we're all invited. Come along and uh, bring your kids, bring your games. It's at the Trinity Bay Hub and uh, starts at 4.30 for games and the church will kick off at 6. So uh, feel free to pop in. Uh, but more than that, we do live in a sort of a, uh, a Photoshop world. We think about social media, Facebook, how careful we are in the way that we Photoshop our lives, making sure that the sort of the faults and the failures are carefully concealed from public consumption. We just want to put out there things that we want people to see. And I was thinking that about every four years, uh, the world goes crazy photoshopping a city as well. Back in the year 2000, uh, we were living in Sydney, uh, in inner Sydney, and it was in the run-up, of course, to the Sydney Olympics. Uh, and we just noticed things changing. Uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars sort of sucked out of regional uh, Australia to build uh, new roads, new, new temples of sport and all sorts of amazing uh, structures. But more than that, the parks had never been as clean. The needles were picked up. Uh, the homeless had been carefully sort of hidden away out of sight. Uh, the prostitutes as well, uh, just mindfully sort of tucked away. Making a city beautiful. Uh, it was going to be on show to the world for a few weeks during the Olympics. Of course, in 2004, it was Athens' turn. They were photoshopped. Uh, in 2008, it was Beijing's turn, uh, where we had a whole underclass hidden from view. 
in 2012, uh, London was photoshopped. Uh, you can speak to the Poms among us, um, what, what that costs humanity over there. Um, then, of course, this year, just at the moment, like right now, uh, they're scrambling to get Rio ready uh, for the Olympics that are going to be starting in August. Scrambling to hide one of the highest crime rates in the world. I found out they're hiring 85,000 security people, twice the number they had to hire uh, to keep London safe four years ago. Uh, And it's just fascinating the way we feel we need to Photoshop and make over a city for an event like that. Uh, last year, um, Ella spent five months in France, particularly Paris. She'd sort of idealised, romanticised uh, for quite a while, uh, wanting to visit Paris. Uh, when she uh, did get to finally walk the streets of Paris, the first thing she said to us when she uh, made contact was, oh, I can't believe how dirty it is. There's cigarette butts everywhere in the gutters and it's, oh, it's horrible and everyone smokes over there and... Um, and it was just a wake-up as you saw a city firsthand close up. Um, it wasn't such a romantic place for her to be. The book of Isaiah is a tale of two cities, uh, and that is beautifully laid out in this study, which I do want to highly recommend you grab your copy, use it for your own use, or publicly you just get together with other people in a group, but just grab one. Uh, great background notes to help you get you into Isaiah. But... It's a tale of two cities, uh, and the Bible really is a story of two cities, uh, Babel or Babylon, if you like. It's the first city of any size mentioned in the Bible, in the 11th chapter of the, um, of the Bible. Uh, it's famous for its humanism. It's famous for people getting together to try to um, build a name for themselves, to, to shut, build God out of their world, uh, where they want to be sort of in control of their own future. Uh, then the other, uh, I guess, big city, Uh, in the Bible is Jerusalem, God's city. Uh, It's also called Zion or Zion. And it's where God's people are saved and gathered by God and they're meant to really enjoy living with God in their midst uh, and with God in the very centre of their lives, delighting in nothing else than trusting his word and obeying it and and, uh, being a light really to the nations, just sort of showing out how wonderful God is uh, and, and attracting people to want to come and find out about their God. And that's how this uh, book in Isaiah opens. Isaiah opens uh, us having a look uh, at Jerusalem. And to look at Jerusalem from a distance, a bit like we might be looking at Rio over the next few months, uh, it, it looked pretty good. It looked good. Uh, King Hezekiah, he'd been on the throne for 40 to 50 years. There was political stability. Uh, hadn't been any coups for a good while. Consumerism was going well. Materialism was up. The standard of living had never been better. Uh, you know, the numbers of people living in the sort of middle classes and upper echelons of life. Uh, I mean, sure, Yahweh was, was, was still the most popular God going around. Um, but, you know, they'd been... this experiment of tolerance they'd been sort of working at for a while sort of pickpocketing the best of religions from surrounding nations and you know it's been helping to keep the peace as well it was you know from a distance it looked like a prospering city jerusalem uh though uh, was like a photoshopped olympic city uh, to uh, step inside the walls of jerusalem to walk around uh, was to get a, 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 a reality check. 
Have a look with me. Really important we have our Bibles open uh, to Isaiah. We're on page 679. 679, uh, as we we look at this book together. And verse 1, if you like, it's a bit like a title. And there's a whole lot of information in in this first verse. It really helps us to read the rest of the book. Um, just, Just how the book actually hangs together. Uh, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, whereabouts in history are we? I've got a little bit of a map here, I think. Um, so this is 800 years before Jesus. You can see you've got Jerusalem down there in the middle. Um, Egypt, where God's people hundreds of years earlier had been slaved out of slavery. Um, you've got Assyria up, up the top. They were the superpower of the day, um, and you've got Babylon or Babylonia. They were the sort of the uh, the next superpower kid on the block. They were about to um, to, to rise up. Uh, you've got um, Israel, the way it would work. You've got uh, 12 tribes, but the 10 tribes, it had sort of been a big split. The northern kingdoms, uh, 10 tribes. Uh, Syria was in busy, uh, sort of wiping them out. Um, they were on the doorsteps of, of Judah and Jerusalem. Um, and Judah was two tribes, uh, and uh, that's called the Southern Kingdom. So that's where we are in history. Uh, what is Isaiah? Well, this first tells us that Isaiah, the whole book, 66 chapters, uh, it's a vision, one vision that God gave Isaiah. It's a vision, it just means like a revelation, uh, a word from God, and it's about Jerusalem and Judah. It's about God's city. And it's God here revealing the significance of all these historical events going on at the time. It's God revealing the significance of what they should mean for God's people back then. But more than that, as we'll find out, uh, what it should mean for God's people today. Why is Judah and Jerusalem under siege by Assyria? What's it mean for God's city? What does it mean for the nations? Uh, What's it mean for us today? That's the questions that Isaiah will unpack. Now, while this vision uh, concerns a specific city, uh, it sort of will be looking out at the rest of the world, the heavens and the earth, from Jerusalem, a little bit like an astronaut might look back at the earth from, um, you know, from a space station. And... Isaiah is, it's, it's a massive vision, which explains why it's such a big book, 66 chapters. Uh, because it's a vision that includes the heavens and the earth. It's a, it's a vision that includes not just what's going on there, 800 years before Jesus. But it's a vision when you get to the end of the book, uh, it takes us right to the end of time. And what, where, where all history is headed. It's huge, it's massive. And it's why I want to encourage us to not only read a chapter a day, a chapter a day, which means in a nine weeks time, you'll get to the end of Isaiah. So read a chapter a day. Uh, But seriously, please work through one of these studies in a group or by yourself. uh, And I promise you, uh, you'll be be enriched uh, because what it will do, it will lift us from our spiritual myopia, uh, from our sort of, uh, our now prayers. It will lift us, lift our own vision uh, and give us a perspective of how to live well uh, in, the, in the world today while we wait for Jesus to come back. Uh, who is Isaiah? Isaiah, we find out he's the son of Amos, possibly from royalty. He's a Jerusalem man. 
Uh, he's getting on, he's living his life, and suddenly, bang, God intervenes, gives him a vision. He's called by God to speak God's word to God's people. Now, if you've read any of the Old Testament, being called to be a prophet, it's a pretty tough gig. It's one of those vocations you didn't sort of like, it wasn't on your top three, you know, when they ask you at school, what do you want to be when you grow up? You didn't say, I want to be a prophet, um, because it was hard. Um, a prophet's mission, if they chose to accept it, it was to give your own people a reality check, your own family, your relatives, your friends, your neighbours. Um, Isaiah's name, it actually means Yeshua Yahoo, Yeshua Yahoo. Uh, it means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Now, that's a really good thing to know because you've got to get through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, uh, which is a pretty heavy word. Uh, there's a lot of judgment language in there until you get to the chapters of comfort and salvation, which brings us to how the book works. And I've got that in our leaflets there. Uh, I've just sort of tried to map out how the book works. And it's important to keep coming back to this. Chapters 1 to 39 uh, mainly deals with what's known as the Assyrian crisis. So Assyria being the superpower wreaking havoc uh, on God's people. It concerns the heavens and the earth then or now, like uh, it concerns Jerusalem then. As I said, there's a lot of talk about judgment, uh, but there are glimpses of God's salvation in those first 39 chapters. Chapters 40 to 66 concerns mainly a period of, in history known as the Babylonian crisis, and it takes us to a new heavens, a new earth, the new thing that God is going to be doing, and a brand new Jerusalem that God is making. And it's known as the book of comfort, of salvation. There are a few reminders that God is holy, he's just, uh, and a day of judgment is coming. But it essentially unpacks um, God's plans to save. Now, like any, uh, any first chapter in, in, a, in a good book, uh, it's well crafted. It introduces you to the people, to the characters, to the themes, to the plots of the book, which is exactly what the first chapter of Isaiah does. And you'll notice um, that essentially today's letter is R. Um, we've got rebellion inside the walls, uh, the call uh, to repent, to reform our ways, to realise uh, the choice that we all have uh, and uh, to come to Jesus. So rebellion and what we find is as we step inside the walls of Jerusalem, um, Babel or Babylon, humanism, it's actually invaded. Uh, the culture of, of Babylon, it's invaded Jerusalem. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken, verse 2. Uh, what's that about? Well, if you were one of God's people back then, if, if you heard a prophet begin his uh, prophecy like that, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, the Lord has spoken, Straight away, if you knew your biblical history, you'd sort of thinking, actually, I better actually stop what I'm doing and listen up here. You see, hundreds of years earlier, when about two million Israelites were on the edge of the Promised Land, about to cross over the River Jordan, God had saved them out of Egypt. They were nobodies. Um, they were God's people. Uh, God thought it would be good for Moses to give a couple of cracking sermons to God's people before they went over, just to remind them how to live as God's people. Uh, and the very last sermon, chapters 28 to 30 of Deuteronomy, um, that Moses gives, he said, look, you guys, you've got two choices. There's two ways you can go. You can choose to trust God, trust his word and do it. Uh, and you'll be blessed. You'll prosper. You'll eat all the fruit of the land. You'll prosper. You'll enjoy being God's people. Uh, or you can refuse 
and forget God's word uh, and you'll come under his curse and you'll be eaten up. You'll be eaten up by the sword. God will literally vomit you out of the land. And at that time, when God sort of laid out the two ways, guess how Moses started his that last sermon? Calling heaven and earth as their witness. You see? Here is now God again through Isaiah um, saying to God's people, listen up and calling heaven and earth to witness, which just lets us know that what God is about to do is as significant as that first exodus. Like, this is huge. This is massive. And it's wonderful. Listen up. Uh, What are the heavens and earth called to witness to? Have a look with me, the second half of verse 2 to 4. I reared children, I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own manager. manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to this sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Three quick observations. The first one, God's children whom he loves. Notice how God refers to his people as his children. It's family language. My children that I've given birth to and that I've raised and reared. The God of the Bible is a relational God. The point of getting to know God is to know the goodness of knowing God as your father. As a father. It's to enjoy life. As, as one of his children, uh, having brothers and sisters everywhere in the world, wherever you go. Uh, there is no better family to belong to than God's family. Now, for those of us who are parents, how sweet life is uh, when our children, uh, they trust us and they treat us right. Uh, they remember to talk to us uh, and they actually live out the family values. And actually, uh, they, they do, if you like, um, what you ask them to do. Which brings us to the second observation. Because God says that my children are behaving badly. They're in rebellion. In fact, they're behaving more stubbornly and stupidly uh, than Peter's cows do sometimes down there at Mount Compass. I grew up on a dairy farm. I know just how stubborn cows can be. Bulls are worse. Boys are always worse. Um, But that's what he's comparing them to farm animals. Now, if you're a parent... Again, then at some point you'll know the worry and the sleepless nights and the distress that we have when one or more of your children, um, they've sort of perhaps made an unwise decision or a a bad choice uh, and they're sort of putting themselves in harm's way or they're suffering the consequences and you you just know there's nothing you can do. You've sort of got to let it all play out. Um, And how awful is it when they just don't want to listen and they actually stop talking to you like you know they give you the silent treatment it's just horrible but here's my question for us for those who are parents like um some of you are smiling you must have teenagers i don't know anyway but how bad would it be how bad would it have to be how badly would one of your children have to treat you for you to say about them what god says about his children here in verses four and five you're loaded up with iniquity you are evildoers. You treat people badly. Your head, your heart, from the top of your heads to the soles of your feet, every part of you is sick with rebellion and sin. I've never gladly had to say that about my children and hope I never do and I don't know if I ever could. 
But it just, it's like, how strong is that language? And it's there to help us understand just how horribly God's own children are treating their God. The God who had saved them, who had reared them, who had led them into the promised land. And so do our third observation. God says his children are utterly estranged. They're cut off. They've cut themselves off, literally. That's the spiritual diagnosis God gives. These headstrong, ungrateful children. They're sort of almost unrecognisable to God as his children. It's like, whoa, I just don't even recognise you guys anymore. But because God is God, because God so loves the world, because nothing can stop God fulfilling his purposes of grace, God cannot let his people carry on in their hypocrisy. He can't let them carry on in the way they are hurting one another, uh, the innocents and the vulnerable. Uh, He can't let them carry on in the the way they are just vandalising God's name among the nations. You know, so God's being mocked. And the last thing the nations want to do is come and be part of God's people. God loves all the nations. He loves all people. And so he's got, to, he's got to intervene. He's got to do something. And it's not like God hasn't sent up warning flares. Have a look with me at verse 7. What does Isaiah say? Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. That is, guys, look, just... Get up on your walls and just look out there. Look at the fires, the smokes, the cities of northern Israel that are still smouldering and burning because of Assyria that have come in. Because their time was up, they refused to turn back to me. Uh, And so verses 7 to 9 here in chapter 1, it paints a picture of a city, Jerusalem, God's city that's actually isolated and it's under siege. Uh, The historical event being referred to here probably is 701 BC when uh, Sennacherib, uh, the the Assyrian and his armies, were literally around uh, Jerusalem's walls, uh, knocking, saying, you know, we're coming in. And it's very clear from these prophets of this time that Assyria is a great nation only because God has raised them up to be a superpower, to be an instrument of his judgment upon his own people. Yeah, yeah, Syria are going to get their day, that they are going to get their just desserts. But in God's purposes of grace, they are God's instrument of discipline, of discipline and justice that he's bringing on his own people. And so for God's people then, the idea that God is holy and just, that he really does dispense justice... That was a present reality. That was painful. That was real. And I wonder, as you think about God as a holy God, God as a just God, as you think of him as active and present in our world, even today, dispensing justice, uh, giving his misbehaving uh, children over to the consequences of their foolish and unwise choices. Of course, we only have to see this uh, and the, the reality of what it means to come under God's judgment as we look at Jesus' cross. They're bearing God's anger and wrath for our sin. And he's there so we can come home, so we can be forgiven. See, how are we to understand what God is doing when he lets us experience the consequences of our sin? Um, Again, for those of us who are gardeners, uh, we just know that... um, 
if we want to sort of help plants to sort of grow and produce healthier and healthy uh, crops of roses or, or fruit, uh, dead branches or branches that are no longer bearing fruit, they need to be pruned back, pruned right back. Uh, so that they'll survive and that they can then grow back healthier. That's exactly what God is doing here among his own people. And he's doing it for the sake of the nations and for their own sake, but for the sake of the nations and for God's glory. Have a look with me at verse 9. Verse 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have uh, been like Gomorrah. Now, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah are those sort of archetypal uh, cities in the Old Testament uh, where everyone is evil, the whole city is wiped out. Uh, they're wiped out. And God is saying that this was actually what Jerusalem deserved, but for God's grace. But for God's grace. Uh, th- they haven't become like Sodom and Gomorrah because God has left them survivors. And all through Scripture, Uh, as God dispenses justice, we always see God preserving a remnant, God preserving survivors every time uh, so that they can actually start over again and God can continue to fulfill his promises. Of course, the question now becomes for these survivors, for this little group of God's people uh, who God's preserved, uh, not because they deserve it, just because God's chosen to preserve them. The question now becomes for them, How will this remnant respond to God's preserving grace? How will they respond? And that brings us really to the the tension that is unpacked through the book of Isaiah. How will God's people respond to God's grace, to God's preserving grace? And so the call to heaven and earth to listen, it serves two purposes. It underlines that the stakes are really, really high, really high. Uh, that the very welfare and future of the earth and the heavens is actually tied up with how God's remaining people will respond to God's word. Will they listen and change their ways or will they continue to refuse and reject God's word for their lives? But second, it foreshadows God's plans of the utterly new and amazing thing that he is going to do that's going to result in a new universe, a new heavens and a new earth. And so I've got a couple of verses here from the end of Isaiah for us. This is where we're heading, uh, chapters 65 and 66. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Again, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. That's where it's all heading. It's huge. It's massive. It's majestic. And so the next section, verses really 10 through to 20, it's that it begins a new unit. Uh, we're calling this, this sort of remnant to respond, if you like. If we find ourselves among God's saved people, uh, if there are any God's saved people here this morning, how should we respond to God's preserving grace? Well, have a look with me at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. That is, of course, uh, the first step always. If you're going to sort of renovate a relationship, you're going to try and repair something that's broken, uh, you've got to listen, don't you? You've got to listen. And that's what God is doing here. Listen to my word. And may we be a people always 
who love nothing more than listening to God's word and getting into the scriptures, uh, obeying it for our life and our relationships. It's important that they listen because they need to dramatically and urgently reform their worship. Uh, That is, when they get together uh, on the Sabbath, they've got to really reform their attitude and the way they're thinking about God and, and what God actually cares about. Because there's worship that's wonky, there's worship that God's, God hates. Uh, in verses 11 to 17, God tells his people then and now uh, what really offends him. And it's worship or religious rituals going through the motions that are divorced uh, from heart obedience. Uh, that are divorced from loving God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and loving your neighbour as you love yourself. That are divorced from justice and mercy it's God's people not caring about people who are in a bind not caring about the widows and the orphans among them or the fatherless not caring about the poor or the defenseless uh, among them as God's people what does Isaiah say in verse 15 when you spread out your hands in prayer I hide my eyes from you even when you offer many prayers I'm not listening I don't know if you've ever done that or could imagine doing that to one of your children coming to you, you know, mummy, mummy, or daddy, daddy, uh, and asking you for something, and you just say, no, no, not listening, no, not listening. You just refuse to listen. But that's what happens, uh, of course, when you uh, treat someone badly. They don't listen, they don't want to listen. Well, what is the worship that God loves? Verses 16 and 17. Look at 17 with me. Uh, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Change your ways, okay? Stop being lukewarm. Uh, Your religious rituals and going through the motions, your sacrifices, your prayers, I'm not listening. It's an offence to me because I see, I know what's really going on and I can see the way you are treating people when you think no one's looking. I see it and it's horrible. And it offends me. Now if God's Old Testament people were to be known for their mercy and compassion and justice. Friends, how much more should God's New Testament people be known for the way that we love one another? Jesus said to his disciples, John 13, you will be known for the way that you love one another. Part of the leftovers of a society founded on a Christian ethic like ours is that we, we still have some safeguards in place to help people who can't help themselves. You know, like legal aid or if you're a criminal, you know, do something you can't afford a lawyer, one will be provided and all those sorts of things. Uh, and they are good and right provisions from a society uh, that knows the importance of caring properly for those who can't help themselves. I think the scriptures teach us and history teaches us that the measure of how mature and healthy a society is. Just look at how that society treats people who cannot help themselves. How they care for the intellectually disabled, how they care for the, the orphans and the widows and the, and the poor. That's the measuring stick of a truly loving and healthy and mature society. In James' letter to Christians everywhere, God says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. How's that going for you? 
Now, let me say among God's people here, um, I love the way I keep hearing snippets of just the way people are so quick to sort of step in and care and to help uh, one another out, uh, to use their knowledge, their expertise, their skills, especially when someone in, is in need and having a hard time. And, uh, and keep it up and keep praying that we would be this people of justice and mercy. And it brings us to God's grace ultimatum that he has for God's people back then in verses 18 to 20. Uh, so it's, it's to realise the choice that we all have, uh, to, to come and reason with God and receive his grace, uh, or refuse to listen to God's word and continue to rebel. Uh, have a look with me, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Now, that word settle the matter, it takes us sort of into a law setting. It's like you've got God who is our father, but he's also the judge. And now he's, you know, we're in the dock and he's saying, okay, now look, I want to reason with you. You know, let's dispute about this. Come on, let's reason together. Let's, I've got a solution. Come on. Um, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Now, of course, uh, these words here uh, is one of the most well-loved, well-known expressions of, of God's grace in the Bible. I mean, they're beautiful. Uh, the, the guilt of the accused has been established without doubt through the chapter. Uh, the sins of the people, I mean, that they're so stained by sin, red as blood, they're crimson. Um, they are just so guilty through and through. Uh, and, and they deserve God's judgment. And just as God, you expect God's judgment should fall on people who treat God so badly. But God says, no, hang on a minute. Let's just have a bit of a t- think about this. Let's dispute about this. Let's reason about this because... I know, I know this is the spiritual state, but I've got an offer for you. What about if I actually uh, wash you clean so that you're white as snow? What do you reckon about that? Uh, the acceptance with God that these people had been vainly sort of thinking that they were okay and trying to earn through their sort of... Um, cultic worship and religious practices while they're sort of treating people badly on the side and um, God's now saying look forget all that I'm offering you this freely uh, to be uh, forgiven a fresh start and to be accepted and to repair the relationship um, as, 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 as children of mine so the invitation is to come reason with God God wants to offer them a total pardon, a total pardon. I found out, uh, partly because we had an American living with us last year, uh, that the American president, he has the ability to completely circumvent the justice system. He has the authority to circumvent the justice system um, and to issue official pardons to anyone he chooses to issue a pardon to. Unlike most executive powers, the authority to grant clemency by the President of the United States, it's unchecked in Congress, it cannot be reviewed, it cannot be blocked, and it cannot be overturned. Did you know that? Um, What's so amazing about God's grace? Well, it's all God's initiative here. It's God offering to cover the cost of forgiveness always. God's, he completely shredding up uh, whatever... Um, record that we might have God shredding it and say it's not only gone but I'm no longer going to remember that you even have a record 
It's gone. You're washed. You're clean. You're cleansed. Now, it's going to take Isaiah the rest of the book to unpack just exactly how God does this and how God can remain God, how he can remain faithful and just and holy, but yet loving and merciful. And it's going to take the whole book to unpack that. But the invitation stands. The invitation stands. Uh, it's, it's to come now, uh, to come and be united with Jesus. Come and become one of his people. I don't know if you saw these cool little stickers right there. I've got two stickers on today. The kids, this term, the whole term, they're learning about just how good life is to be friends with Jesus, to actually be united with Jesus, united with Christ. Um, there's some other united thing going on this afternoon, I think. And oh, I mean, I hope they get the victory. Uh, but friends, uh, if, if, you, if you're united with Christ, to be united with Christ is to live every second of every day knowing that you have the victory. You have the victory always. That you will never and can never actually be accused of your sin before the God of grace. For people who come and keep coming to Jesus, humble, contrite, penitent of heart, quick to confess sin and wrongdoing, begging Jesus to continue to instruct them by their grace, to remake them and mould them, to be his people. The promise is that we will always have the victory. We do need to hear verse 20 though. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Refuse and rebel against God and his word and you'll be eaten up by the sword. So obey God uh, and eat the blessings of the land, uh, rebel against God and be eaten up by the sword of God's judgment. Just as certain our victory is for those who come and put their trust in Christ, we, God says, be sure, be sure uh, that a day of justice is coming for everyone and you don't want to fall on the wrong side of my grace. See, whether you choose to accept my offer or not, I'm doing this. <laughs> That's what he's saying to God's people back then. Irrespective of how you guys choose to respond, I'm doing this. I'm doing with this. Look with me, verses 27 and 28. Zion, it's a word for Jerusalem, will be delivered with justice. Her penitent ones will, uh, with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord, they will perish. Now, the way God will redeem and save and purify his people... Again, that's going to be unpacked in, in chapters 40 to 66. So uh, strap yourself in for the ride over the next nine weeks. Please come back, go to a group, come every Sunday as we uh, unpack this book. But we're reminded today that for God to be God, justice must be dispensed. The mystery of God's love is that in the very act of him dispensing justice, God is actually delivering and purifying a people for himself. It's a great mystery that I, I, I stand here and I have to say, I just, I don't understand how that works. <laughs> but in the very act of God dispensing justice, he's always purifying and delivering a people for himself. And he's going to purify and deliver a brand new Jerusalem. Whether you're here today as someone who's still looking into, the, into God, still trying to work Jesus out, whether you're someone here today who is one of God's people, the invitation is the same always for every one of us it's to come come to jesus and to keep coming keep coming to jesus every day 
What does Isaiah say in chapter 2 as we, as we finish off? Have a look at verse 3 with me. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Again, verse 5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In John chapter 4, Jesus bumps into a confused Samaritan woman asking, you know, where do we worship? Which mountain do we got to worship God on? And Jesus says, look, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. Salvation is from the Jews and it's not about mountains. It's about me me i'm the new temple i'm the new meeting place where people come to hang meet with god i'm the one people now come to to be taught about god come to me come to jesus she goes away happy as a lark she's so happy she brings the whole town back you've got to come you've got to come and meet this guy i think he's a messiah i think he's the one the one that Isaiah prophesied about And so we've got to come, we've got to keep coming to Jesus so we can be taught God's grace continually. Taught how to enjoy the life that we've all been saved to live. Taught how to live as one of God's children. Uh, Children who love nothing more than bearing the sort of, uh, the the, the character of their dad. Of living out his values, of living out his word. So that others can just see how beautiful God is. How wonderful it is to be part of his family. And they want to come when we ask them. They want to come because I think, you know, there's something different about you. And I think I want a piece of that. And so we've got to come. We've got to keep coming. Let me pray as we finish off. Father, uh, your word uh, to Christians, uh, to your children, uh, from Hebrews in chapter 12, it echoes some of these words here to your children 800 years before Jesus. We read and you say, see to it that you do not refuse him who speak. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your spiritual diagnosis of us. In your holy love, we've been reminded that you hate hypocrisy, especially among your people. May we hate the hypocrisy in our lives just as much. Please help us to turn to you now humbly and confess our sin. Thank you for the cleansing blood of Jesus who washes away the stain of our sin. Thank you that Jesus paid it all on his cross. Thank you for your amazing pardon of grace. Help us to keep turning to you. Help us to keep coming to the scriptures please keep teaching us how to live as your children whose greatest joy is to walk in the light of your word that others may see your beauty they might want to accept our invitations and so come with us to get to know jesus to get to know jesus our savior our lord our god whom we love and we want to praise and in whose name we do pray amen